Hi, this is Oscar. This is Sanjana. And this is Hayden. You are listening to Daily Discoveries, and we are part of the Daily at the University of Washington, and this is the podcast where we discuss new discoveries in Science Weekly. So this is the first episode of the summer series where we may not be recording episodes weekly, but we'll put a couple out before the actual autumn quarter begins. And this summer and the following year, we are joined by a third co-host. Hey folks, my name is Hayden. I am a rising senior at University of Washington, majoring in biochemistry. I'm super excited to be here and just talk about some cool scientific discoveries. All right. We're very happy to have you, Hayden, and I'm really excited to get back into podcasting. And this week, we are talking about nanobots and nanotechnology in general. Well, what is nanotechnology in general? It's technology used at the nanoscale, where different types of compounds that are tiny, and you use them for tons of different purposes. Specifically, this week, we're going to be talking about DNA nanobots, which are nanobots made out of DNA origami, (laughs) and DNA origami is basically a technique where you make a DNA scaffold of some sort that is able to fold in a certain way to create the nanobot that you want. So the first paper we wanted to discuss about nanobots uh, was in the Science Daily, and it was called A Modular Spring-Loaded Actuator for Mechanical Activation of Membrane Proteins. So a lot of cellular function is driven by mechanical forces. For example, when you touch something, it could lead to pain perception. And this is called cellular mechanosensitivity. And this field isn't heavily researched because the technology they need to study this mechanisms is limited and very expensive. So the scientists at the Structural Biology Center at INSERM used DNA to create 3D nanostructures. And using three structures, they made a nanorobot, and the nanorobot can apply a force equivalent to a finger clicking a pen. And what it can do is activate mechanoreceptors, which would drive cellular processes. And this method allows scientists to activate different receptors and see how it affects different processes in the body so they can better map out signaling pathways. However, since the nanorobot is made of DNA, the scientists are still trying to figure out how they can modify the surface of the robot because the structure of the robot may be compromised if it is in contact with an enzyme that can degrade DNA. Yeah, I thought this was a pretty, pretty cool paper in general, especially just as you said, mentioned for just like basic science research where you have these different diseases like uh, like atherosclerosis. It's a hard word for me to say. Um, or even cancer where mechanical forces play into them. And so just being able to better understand these uh, diseases, I think is going to be potentially super, uh, super beneficial. Because like the old ways, I think was like using tweezers or you can use, I think like force microscopy. But as you mentioned, they're super expensive. And so they're not widely available. Yeah. And that's a, I think this is a very creative upgrade from that old technology. I think it's, I mean, I think it's just amazing how they come up with something like this. Um, And I think it's a a really, really great paper, and I recommend people to read it if they have the chance. Oh, I was just going to mention that how I think it's super cool that because it's made of DNA, they can customize it for each person. 
Yeah. I think the other cool thing about it is the fact that they're able to adjust like how much pressure because you have those, like the three parts, you have the two legs and then you have this um, basically like a, a pressure spring that you're able to push into the mechanical sensors. And so you can adjust, but like the length of the mechanical uh, spring and that'll adjust how much force is put into it, which I think is very cool um, because, you know, I don't think we're, Maybe with some of the tweezer technology or some of the other technology. I, I'm not very familiar with it, to be honest. But uh, to be able to modulate between, like, I think the paper mentioned, like, 1 to 15 picanewtons. Like, I don't know what information is going to come out of it, but it'll be interesting to see for sure. Yeah. And the DNA design and what makes it possible is that you're able to put multiple parts together. So they have... For even just the the actual motor itself, there's two DNA parts holding the shaft in the middle together, and then there's DNA parts for each leg. I mean, it's it's a really cool design, and it, it shows how extensive and how endless DNA origami can be to create these nanobots for tons of different purposes. Yeah, and we have some other papers that are highlighting some of those, and we can go ahead and move on to it if we're good with that. Yeah. Right on. Because as you mentioned, the, the, it's, it's a super extensive network of what these DNA nanobots can do. And a paper in 2012 out of the church group at Harvard kind of showed the DNA nanobots in a different light as a, a way that you can deliver cancer therapeutics. They were able to build a DNA origami box. So basically you have your sheet of DNA and you have multiple sheets to basically, as I said, you create a box and then they use these aptamer clasps. And all aptamers are, are basically the DNA version of antibodies. So that's kind of what targets these DNA boxes to the cells that they're interested in targeting. And inside them, they then put these, these antibody fragments. On my first reading, I didn't catch it, but the antibody fragments are actually bound to the box. So they, they're not free fragments that just float around. Even when the box is open, they're still bound to the box. And through some really cool cell culturing experiments, they were able to show that these aptamers are very cell specific. So cells have to have certain surface proteins on them. And then what happens is the box will bind to the surface proteins, open the box, and then the antibody fragments will bind to other surface proteins on the cells. And when they bind, they cause the cell to fluoresce. And that's how you kind of know, did the nanobot work or not? You were mentioning the box. Can they reuse it? Like, could they put another DNA antibody inside? Or is it what happens to it after it delivers it? From my understanding is they're not super reusable. Um, some of the other papers that looked at DNA nanobots and living systems basically just showed that they just get eaten by the immune cells. So they get, uh, they undergo phagocytosis and then they are broken down within the immune cell. So I think that's kind of, what ends up happening. But to be honest, I am not super certain if they're able to kind of refold back up. But another cool part about this is not only did they use these, did they use these in single cell cultures, they also use them in mixed cell cultures. So through flow cytometry, they were able to append or they had a, a cell culture of mixed cells. They then added the DNA nanobot to it. And they showed, again, I thought pretty convincingly in this paper that the DNA nanobots were able to specifically target 
certain cells. And then not only were they able to just append fluorescence, but they were also able to change out the antibody fragments. And they used antibody fragments that have been seen to stop growth in certain cancer cell lines. And they were able to show that in a mixed population, you could stop growth. They also showed that you could activate T cells. So as far as like highly specific therapies in the future, I think these DNA nanobots really pose an interesting solution to in this case, cancer, but there's probably other diseases as well. Just adding on to that, something what I found really interesting about this article was that the nanobot was actually able to have multiple different aptamers. Mm-hmm. And through that, so the aptamer is what, is what allowed the actual box to unlock, right? So yeah. if the aptamer bound to its target, then the box opened. However, they were actually able to put multiple different aptamers on the DNA origami box. And so until this nanobot bound all of its targets, or the aptamer is bound all of its targets, the actual box wouldn't open. So this was a way that they can bring two cells together, say a T cell and then a cancer cell. If you have an aptamer for the T cell and an aptamer for the cancer cell, you bind one to the T cell, one to to the tumor cell, and the nanobot kind of brings those two together, and then the box is able to open and, yeah. So I think that that was another really interesting application of these nanobots. Yeah, yeah. I I forgot to mention the the two aptamer system, but it it also just really enhances selectivity. I mean, you if you have a potentially like ubiquitous molecule, I think the next paper we're going to talk about mentions it mentions like a, a molecule that's pretty ubiquitous. I mean, it'll it just causes blood to coagulate, and so you want it delivered to a certain like a very specific tissue, being able to be as selective as possible. In this case, they use the the analogy of an AND gate. So I mean, like you're coding, you have Booleans, which is basically just like, if this, then this, or it's kind of like a true. So is this and this statement true? It gets true, false. Um, and so when you have more and more ands, so like, does it have this receptor and this receptor and this receptor, then you can just get higher specificity and prevent unwanted side effects, which is like a huge problem in cancer therapies, right? You have all these unwanted side effects that lead to, yes. well, really, there's the unwanted side effects that can be detrimental to the patient's health. And so trying to be as specific as possible can hopefully ameliorate some of those uh, unwanted side effects. Right. A huge issue with cancer therapeutics is being able to distinguish self from tumor cells because they are so similar, because they are your own cells that are now turning into these tumor cells. And so developing something like this, where they have multiple aptamers that, for example, this time maybe you would need all three aptamers to bind to a tumor cell. And like only tumor cells have all these three, but maybe some of your cells have one, but that wouldn't, it would only bind to tumor cells because tumor cells have all three. Yeah. But yeah, you're totally right. Selectivity is something really important in this field. Okay. So the, the final article that we looked at in terms of DNA origami nanorobots was an article called a DNA nanorobot functions as a cancer therapeutic in response to a molecular trigger in vivo. And this was looked at by the Zhao lab from the University of Chinese Academy of Sciences in Beijing. And they use a very interesting approach to as a using these nanorobots as a cancer therapeutic. They are trying to rid of cancer by blocking blood flow to the tumor through coagulation 
at vessels that lead to the tumor. They plan to do this by exposing thrombin, which is a coagulation protease, which regulates platelets aggregating together by activating them and converting them or converting circulating fibrinogen to fibrin, which leads to coagulation. As I said, I think in my opinion, I think this is a very creative yet risky approach because this again has to be, the selectivity of this has to be, is very important because if the selectivity goes wrong and you're coagulating in the wrong place, you're gonna have lots of unwanted problems. To tackle this problem, however, they did come up with an extremely clever solution and that is to use an antibot that essentially sneaks thrombin around the body until the nanobot bumps into a tumor vessel marker using a aptomer, just like the previous nanobot. So it's a very similar concept. When the nanobot bumps into the tumor vessel marker, then this nanobot opens and releases the thrombin and thrombosis occurs. And to create this nanobot, they also use DNA origami in an extremely clever way, actually. They basically started with a tiny flat DNA origami sheet, and then they added thrombin to it as if you were put loading a burrito with rice and beans. <laughs> and then they rolled it up so that the thrombin remained protected inside this tube of DNA origami as the nanobot snuck it around through the, the different vessels in the body, surrounded by circulating platelets and plasma fibrogen undetected. To make sure that the nanobots were actually able to open and reveal the thrombin at the right place, they held this nanobot closed with a fastener strain, this is what they called it, that bind nucleolin proteins that are found only on the surface of actively proliferating tumor vascular endothelial cells, and they dissociate when they bind. They made sure this worked, that the fasteners, they basically made sure that the fasteners would only dissociate once binding to the nucleolin by creating an experiment where the fasteners held a DNA origami tube together and it would fluoresce when it hybridized, which means that it bound to the nucleolin protein and the DNA origami box opened. And they tested many more aspects of the nanobot to suggest that it would be able to do the task that it was made for. Some aspects that they tested were how effectively the nanobot remained bound to the nucleolin positive cells, like how long it remained bound to them. And they also wanted to test if the nanobots were likely to go toward the tumor with the aptomer present. So they then tested how the body clears, gets rid of nanobots, and where it ends up once injected. And like Sanjay was asking earlier, after it has done its job. So they tested how it would do its job, did it very well. And then the nanobot, after only 72 hours, had caused thrombosis in tumor vessels in mice with tumors. And they looked at the peripheral organs, such as heart, liver, lung, kidney, and found no thrombosis there. Over time, the tumor size of the mice was significantly less than that of controls, and tumors grew significantly less. They still grew, actually, just at a, a, way, or a smaller rate than or the mice that were not treated with the nanobot. But after the nanobot had done its job, it was secreted to the liver, I believe, and yeah, thereby through phagocytosis, it was engulfed, as Hayden mentioned earlier. Yeah, I think it's the treatment isn't extremely effective right now, but I think it's a very creative idea that opens gates to more creative ideas like this. Yeah, um, they mentioned too 
part of the reason for going after thrombin in comparison to some of the other aspects where you like you have an exact like an exact antibody binder or an exact chemotherapeutic um, was because it's hard to for a cell to gain resistance against it. Like it's not like you're necessarily attacking it with some sort of chemical. You're just like starving of nutrients and oxygen, which unless these cells become like proficient at like, anaer- well, I guess they, they do use some anaerobic metabolism, but unless they become very proficient with no to low nutrients, uh, I think that's hard to, as I mentioned, hard to gain resistance against. Right. And it's very unlikely that they create another tumor because they're not messing with DNA in any way, like chemotherapy. Yeah. So other tumors aren't going to arise either. Something I found kind of interesting is you guys mentioned the nanorobots being used as therapeutics. I was wondering if maybe we could use it as like a diagnostic instead, because you mentioned that the nanorobot would only open uh, once it bound to a proliferating like tumor. So I wonder if they could change it so it could recognize tumors and then like bound to them before it's like proliferating. So even though there's like less of them and then maybe it could release some kind of signal or like fluorescence that we could recognize and figure out if they have cancer or not earlier. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, you know, like the point of these studies have just been to show like cancer therapeutic, but the diagnostic faction, like they kind of touched on it when they, because initially to see before they did like thrombin in the, they did some fluorescent studies to just ensure that hey, are we actually delivering it to it? Like the study where they were looking at where it ends up, that was like a fluorescent-based study. And so they were actually able to like show like, oh, it targets the tumor and then it moves to the liver. But yeah, for cancers that are hard to detect, I think it's a really interesting method. For instance, like in colonoscopies, there are these different polyps, which are like little flat, like proliferating cells in your colon. And there are types of polyps that are super hard to identify. And so actually having like a fluorescent marker where you can just see them, right? Because you're look, you're going through the colon by eye and you're looking through and you're looking at it. Um, and so being able to actually see the polyps if they were like fluorescently labeled, great little diagnostic tool right there. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I think all the papers were really cool and showed this really awesome just like expansion or not like this, not necessarily expansion, but just how wide this, uh, the DNA and nanobots are and the fact that you know they've moved from the cell culture studies to these in vivo models is awesome like i'm 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 excited to see what sort of therapeutics are able to come out of these and whether they're therapeutics or diagnostics like you mentioned mentioned sanjana um yeah i I think it's a really cool field yeah and the fact that they were somewhat successful in these in vivo studies where obviously the environment is extremely complicated with tons of different cells and then these nanobots were time and time again still able to bind very specifically to the place where they were supposed to bind. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to see clinical trials where they do it in vivo for humans. Yeah, and I think one thing that's like promising um, is the, one of the first concerns that popped into my mind is like you have the single-stranded DNA. You know, viruses are single-stranded DNA. Is this going to cause some sort of uh, immune response? And they, in the DNA nanorobot for the cancer therapeutic, they actually carried out some in vivo safety studies. And they showed that it really, the nanorobot had no significant impact on IL-6, IP-10, TNF-alpha, or IFN-alpha, which are all just cytokines. So if those levels were high, 
you would see like, oh, you're having some sort of immune response. But they show that they didn't. So, you know, perhaps it's actually somewhat inert immunologically, which would be super cool. Yeah, I think these safety analyses are going to be very important, especially when you're coming up with something new like nanobots. Yeah, I, you know, we've seen that nanotechnology can have a, an unfortunate blowback against it. And so I think just education um, is going to be huge for that, right? People don't want like nanorobots and the idea of like, oh, they're putting some sort of like robot inside of me. It's not really a robot per se. It's a, it's a molecule. It's a small molecule that just has some chemical therapeutics in it. And that makes me like think because even the word nanobot, it doesn't even feel to me at least that appropriate to something like a DNA origami nanobot because it just, I mean, it is just a molecule, but I do understand that, I mean, it has like a function to, it opens up or it has pressure, it's able to apply pressure, but I don't know, what do you guys think? To me, it doesn't really feel like a robot at all. (laughs) Yeah, when I first heard like the word nanorobot, I would think it was like a device that they would like put in your body and it would like do like surgery or something (laughs) they would like program it or remotely control it but nanorobots are actually just well they are kind of like just dna that has been programmed to do a certain thing i feel like i could kind of compare it to crispr it doesn't have the same structure but in terms of like function yeah it's weird to think about because right when we think about robots we think about these like macroscopic so these large like metal things exactly but at the end of the day the only thing that's different is just the material right so instead of having some sort of metallic programmable object it's just a dna programmable object like you give it some pre-programmed function and then it goes and carries it out it's just weird to think about it because it's as you said it's made out of dna it's like well you wouldn't call a protein a robot i also read somewhere not to confuse people but i think previously they tried working with microbots which are at a larger scale like micrometers rather than nanometers basically these these uh, robots are made up of multiple cells put together and they were actually able, they were able to like walk along different structures and tissues i mean it's pretty interesting getting out of your 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 box of what you define as a robot like anything right we we have these definitions these preset definitions for things but a lot of oftentimes it kind of limits your your view of what's possible. Okay, that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to Daily Discoveries.